One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to something a little bit special. Yes, the rumours are in fact true, and we are taking a small vacation from our coverage of the Long War and the era of Louis XIV to 
bring you something completely different. The Korean War will be hitting the shelves of when diplomacy fails soon enough, but before we do that, I felt it'd be wrong to just jump straight into the era of a post-war world. A world which is, as we said, completely different from the 1680s. To make up for this, I prepared something to get us all in the mood for what's to come. It's important to ease ourselves into an era as complex and alien to us as the post-World War II era, especially since our long war coverage has been so dominated by the person of Louis XIV and the glory of France. You can call this whatever you want, but I'm going to call the next five episodes a Cold War Crash Course, and I've designed it to get everyone up to the same level of knowledge, so that when our examination of the Korean War properly begins, we're all on the same page. If this all sounds good, then I would like to say welcome, and I hope you enjoy what I've been busily preparing for you guys for the last few months. It's been a very busy time in When Diplomacy Fails Towers, but I feel the decision to branch off and cover something as relevant and fascinating as the Korean War is the right one. We'll return to that old era of Louis XIV all in good time, but for now, there's a new world for us to explore, with new characters, issues and incidents to wrap our heads around. I am really excited to begin this, guys. You may or may not be aware, because I haven't shut up about it for the last few months as I've been working on it. So make sure to tell all your friends about it, and let's see if covering more recent, or dare I say it, mainstream history gets When Diplomacy Fells more notoriety. Either way, we're about to enter what will be a very interesting and in many senses understudied era, not merely in the form of the Korean War, but also in the immediate post-war world that emerged, devastated, following the most destructive conflict mankind had ever seen in autumn 1945. It is into this world that I will take you, and it is in this incredible story that When Diplomacy Fells' new year begins. 2017 was an amazing year for us, but I can guarantee that 2018 will be even better, so let's start it off with a bang. If you're ready, I will now take you to autumn 1945. I thought you'd be there waiting for me. What greeted me instead was the lingering stench of ashes and the empty sockets of our ruined home. Polish citizen Samuel Puderman returns to Warsaw in late 1945. On the surface, it may seem odd and unnecessary to begin an analysis of the Korean War on the continent of Europe, and not merely in a region thousands of miles from where the conflict would erupt, but five years before it actually broke out. Having said that, my decision to begin our coverage of the Korean War in the ashes of the Second World War and in the context of the first blows of the Cold War was not a difficult one. This is because the Korean War was a product of the Cold War and formed a theatre of it just as much as the Berlin blockade, the Vietnam War, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or the 1968 revolt in Prague. It was no longer all against Nazi fascism. It was instead, at least in some senses, East versus West, but in every sense, democracy against communism. The story of how Korea and its bloody war fit into the opening phases of a conflict barely conceived or understood 
is by its nature a complex one, but it had its roots in the post-war settlement. It was in the shattered expectations, the intense fears and the terrible depressions of a ruined Europe that American money and military power became critical commodities to an extent never before imagined possible. Such American muscle would be essential if Europe was to rebuild, and rebuild it would have to do if communism was to be held at bay and the continent was to move on from the ruinous first half of the century. It is worth stating just how ruinous that span of time had been. A total war unlike any other in the human experience had been brought to bear on the world, and on the most developed portion of the world, for five and a half concentrated years. Unlike the comparatively more martial aspect of the First World War, where large urban centres, with the exceptions of portions of Russia, Belgium and France, had been left intact, the Second World War had cut a swathe through European civilization. In the course of cutting this swathe, the Second World War distinguished itself from the previous conflicts by targeting the civilian before the soldier. The impact of the war on the unarmed and the helpless, on the village and community, on the government and the organisation, was unparalleled. The war was one which bypassed traditional rules and laws in the pursuit of its murderous vengeance, which spoke in terms of unconditional surrender, mass destruction and genocide. It is impossible for any of us alive today to comprehend what it must have been like for a veteran of the First World War, or a citizen born in France in 1900 for example, to have lived through the shattering experience of the first decades of the 20th century. Little wonder that the Europe which emerged on the other side of the VE Day celebration was, after that burst of relieved energy, enmeshed deep in a mood of profound anxiety, melancholy and despair. All they knew had been destroyed, all which had been relied upon had been dislocated or removed, the world in which they had grown up in and the laws which they had been taught to respect had been disregarded, replaced with a new regime, sometimes depending on where they lived, a sequence of regimes. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. I'll repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. By the time Adolf Hitler shot himself on the 30th of April 1945, his war had consumed countless millions of people, and his party's ideals had sentenced millions more to death based purely on prejudice or appearance. Unlike wars that preceded the Second World War, Hitler's conflict seemed to know no limits. Its fury rolled over the continent, like an uncompromising wave, drowning in its wake all sense of decency, morality and compassion. The truly terrifying thing was the floodgates which the German regimes appeared to open, the free reign which the German presence gave certain individuals to abandon their humanity and to engage in murderous activities had torn asunder any sense of European civilised superiority, instead plunging that civilization into an unprecedented darkness. Wars of occupation were by no means a new aspect of European warfare. Napoleon Bonaparte's successive triumphs had fostered not merely an invincible France upon the European stage, but a new set of French-sponsored or French-intimidated states, held in place by the threat of force or by the presence of French soldiers on the state soil. A new order was created which outlasted even Napoleon himself, and the roots which his conflict spawned had grown into their own unique forests by the time the conflict 
was reshaped again in the Franco-Prussian War, and the balance of power was altered once more. Yet even before this Prussian triumph, where the soldiers of Germany marched through France on a scale never before seen, the nations of Europe had known to expect occupying forces in the event of war. We need only to look at the Thirty Years' War, where Swedes and their mercenaries bled portions of the continent dry in their pursuit of plunder, of security or of victory. In fact, the late historian Tony Judd, writing in his groundbreaking tome, Post-War, noted that Folk memories of the Thirty Years' War in 17th century Germany, during which foreign armies lived off the land and terrorised the local population, were still preserved three centuries later in local myths and fairy tales. Well into the 1930s, Jutt continues, Spanish grandmothers were still chastening wayward children with the threat of the aforementioned Napoleon. Furthermore, when the invading armies had arrived in the past, looting, killing, plundering and other unsavoury practices accompanied the usual military violence. However, it is important to remember that the Second World War was unique precisely because the terrible practices which had in the past accompanied the military invasions across the continent represented an end goal. In other words, where massacres and atrocities could take place on a random or opportune basis, take the First World War, for example, where armed Belgian citizens were said to have fired upon their German invaders and suffered terrible consequences, the Second World War contained few such occasions. Citizens were killed because they had been deliberately targeted. Perhaps more insidiously, they were killed not merely because they happened to be a member of a resistance group, but because of their ideological or racial identification. Jews, communists, Slavs, those that weren't sufficiently Aryan enough or national socialist enough to fit with the image of the Thousand Year Reich, all were up for systematic liquidation. Unlike in previous conflicts where atrocity was a byproduct of the war, here genocide was state policy, and what was more, this policy was, for the first time ever on such a scale, aimed specifically at Europeans. Understanding this distinction between the Second World War and those conflicts which came before help also to explain why the entire experience had been felt to be so shattering. Cities were bombed out shells, populations were on the move from these same cities, fleeing from advancing soldiers or the more menacing threats of starvation and disease. This devastation was all the more total not merely because Europe lay in the warpath of the Allied attack and advance, but because for the past five and a half years, both the Allies and the Axis had done all they could to divert the energies, the resources and the production centres towards that single-minded goal, winning the war. Nazi Germany was in fact able to avoid making its populations truly feel the full extent of the war's negative effects until as late as 1944. This was because, until the Normandy landings at least, the Nazis had been plundering the occupied territories in the West and the East to make up the difference while protecting the greater German core. Not only did the Germans utterly plunder the lands they occupied to pay for and supply the war with France, contributing the largest amount of all the occupied territories, but these same territories were then reduced to scorched earth once the Nazis then retreated. By contrast, the likes of Britain plundered its own dominions to pay for the Herculean efforts needed to sustain and further the war effort, and multiplied its national debt fourfold by the time the war had ended. By 1945, Britain had grown accustomed to spending over 50% of its GNP on defeating Nazi Germany, an incredible fact, especially in light of the oft-repeated claim that 
Neither Britain nor the United States contributed all that much, especially in comparison to the Soviet Union. The Western or Anglo-American contribution was highly significant considering the history of both nations and the evidence struggle which was launched in Britain especially to finance the process, but all naturally paled in comparison to the efforts, contributions and losses of the Soviet Union. Considering what I've just said about the unique face of the war, no other combatant suffered on such an incomprehensible human scale as did the USSR. It is estimated that some 36.5 million people died between 1935 and 45 in Europe, a figure which does not include natural causes or the casualties caused by the stringent circumstances of the conflict. Of these 36.5 million, another estimate gives us the figure of 16 million as the tally of Soviet civilians who died in the conflict. Civilians, that is, not including soldiers, and although the figures remain a bone of contention to this day, it is said that somewhere in the region of 8 million Soviet soldiers were meant to have perished during the same period. The fact that twice as many civilians as soldiers died in the Soviet Union is a striking and terrible indication of the kind of conflict that the Second World War was, but the Soviets' example is not unique. While not as high as double the military casualties, in Hungary, Poland, Yugoslavia, Greece, France, the Netherlands, Belgium and Norway, civilian casualties were higher than military casualties. The only states with higher losses in the military than in the civilian spectrum were the Americans, British and perhaps surprisingly, the Germans. Elsewhere, the figures are as unsettling as they are impossible to comprehend. Poland lost an estimated 5 million civilians during the course of the war. Yugoslavia, 1.4 million. Greece, 430,000. France, 350,000. Hungary, 270,000. The Netherlands, just over 200,000. And Romania, almost exactly 200,000. The human cost of the war was thus unlike anything the world had ever seen. That this terrible swathe of death was inflicted upon a corner of the world, only 5.5 million square kilometres in size, the equivalent of roughly half the size of the United States, makes it all the more terrible. The true extent of the Nazi atrocities as they rampaged across the West and East, are the casualties caused by the Allied bombing of German cities in the latter stages of the war, or of the catastrophic damage done to the continent's infrastructure, housing, industry and agricultural production could not be known in autumn 1945 and are still being debated today. Yet what was known by the 2nd of September 1945, when the Empire of Japan made a capitulated peace with the Allies and brought the war in the Pacific to its conclusion, was that the Second World War was, at last, at an end. My fellow Americans, Supreme Allied Commander General MacArthur and Allied representatives on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. The thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There on that small piece of American soil anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. The incomparable impact and scar which the war had left on European consciousness and the uncertain prospects for the future as Europe looked forward to a continent dominated by another uncompromising ideology added only to the sense of despair, poverty, grief and tragedy 
which greeted all those that did come home. If the war had indeed been won, then among those citizens who had lost everything, or among those Jews who continued to flee from the habitual pogroms in Poland or the Ukraine, or among those that imagined a great and terrible new era of world relations, there was little sense of any kind of victory. Immense shortages in virtually every sphere, from coal to railroads to transport that coal to able-bodied men to drive those trains, had the effect of paralysing the post-war arrangement and forestalling any significant efforts which were made to recover what had been lost. Europe had reached the apex of its own suicidal destruction, the culmination of five decades of arms races, ideological poisoning and ruinous competition. Everywhere one looked in Europe, one thing could at least be held in common. A burning desire for peace, a lasting peace, was taking root. Yet this desire for peace had to be set against the disconcerting force of communism, the spread of Soviet influence westward, and the evident danger which existed in crafting a post-war world that would not backslide into ruin once more. The fear and threat of a post-war backslide was all the more palpable, of course, because Europeans had been here before. Many of those that would head up the post-war governments of Europe were in fact born in the previous century and had attended those memorials where it was stated that never again could war be allowed to destroy the world on such a scale. This promise had been broken and a further generation had been sacrificed upon the insatiable altar of the Second World War. All too wary of such experiences, the post-war governments in the West were anxious to the point of paralysis not to go back on their word again. There could be no question of a reversion back into totalitarianism, of fascism or of the kind of racial demagogy that launched the Second World War. Yet how to proceed remained the question, and everyone seemed to have differing answers. In the wake of the longed-for peace, matters were intensely complicated by the absence of a clean and straightforward peace treaty, as had been seen from 1919. This time the problems and challenges facing the victorious Allies were far more severe. First was the aforementioned devastation, the sense of hopelessness, of impoverishment and of destruction which seemed to leave no urban centre untouched. Warsaw, for example in Poland, had been deliberately and systematically dynamited under Hitler's orders and barely 20% of the city's buildings remained standing. The Warsaw example leads to the second point, that in the devastation and destruction, exacerbated by the presence of large bodies of soldiers, the displaced peoples of Europe were everywhere scrambling to move somewhere or be moved somewhere else. This displaced person's problem was tantamount to a crisis and represented the worst refugee crisis ever seen in European memory, topped only in the last few years, it is said, by the scenes caused by those fleeing ISIS. In the late 1940s, the refugee problem hampered the Allies in that it prevented the formation of any easy, agreeable solution. Instead, the Allies would have to talk numbers. How many displaced persons would the different states take, and should they expel by force if necessary those Soviet citizens caught on the other side? In the precious years of 1945, 46, and for a time in 47, before the aftermath of the war became so politicised and the Cold War was properly brought into view, the order of the day was the solving of the human problem and the paying of the human cost. The second point was complicated by the third, as in the East, Stalin's advancing Red Army had the power and authority to redraw the map of Europe. 
Not only that, but it also had the ability to rewrite the demographic status of the continent as well. In comparison to the First World War, where borders were redrawn on a large scale to reflect the new right for self-determination, but the populations, the notable exceptions being Turkey and Greece, were left alone. From 1945 instead, a new kind of order was being established which, by its end, brought forcibly to a close centuries of European history. The process of homogenizing Eastern Europe, of moving Germans out of Poland, Poles out of Ukraine, Ukrainians out of Bulgaria, Bulgarians out of Romania, Romanians out of Hungary, and so on, was one which aimed at the simplification of the European racial problem and the solution to a post-war desire for revenge. Those ethnic minorities who had long dwelt in a different nation-state in the East, the Polish distribution into Ukraine or the German presence in the Baltic states to take two prominent examples, all had a tendency and a motive to collaborate with those invading armies as they approached. In some cases, this resulted in reprisals created by the ethnic minority against the majority, and this same minority largely had little desire to stick around once the peace came and the opportunity for revenge on the part of the majority dawned. The historically spread and widely varied German communities in Europe's east had become the target of resentful and vengeful populations, many of whom had been attacked and deliberately murdered themselves as per the policy of Liebensraum at the onset of the invasion of the Soviet Union. Whether Germans fled on their own accord into the shattered remnants of Germany or not, other ethnicities were forcibly moved according to an official Soviet policy line, which aimed at, as I said, simplifying the national question and facilitating a kind of ethnic cleansing, which led to further deaths and confusion in the already exhausted post-war world. The Germans were to suffer the most from this policy, as the once vaunted Sudeten Germans, for instance, were expelled en masse from Czechoslovakia into Germany, three million Germans left in all. It is perhaps insensitive or controversial to see any kind of irony in anything that followed the depressed aftermath of the Second World War, but one cannot fail to notice that the Germans suffered most from a post-war policy which their former masters in Berlin had set in motion in the first place. The German displacement of peoples in the East was the trademark policy of the Third Reich, but in the post-war arrangement it was the Germans, whose fate had been sealed in Allied agreements made sometimes as far back as 1942, who suffered the most. The displacement of peoples, the poverty of the continent and its governments from East to West, and the forced dislocation of centuries of history in the form of state-sponsored ethnic cleansing, all these were illnesses of a continent evidently battered and defeated, after so much terrible traumas. What was more, when the initial positivity faded and the optimism over inter-allied cooperation was deadened somewhat by high-level disagreements, the Western and Central European governments were further depressed and concerned to see a similar trend repeat itself. Almost as soon as the war ended, American soldiers began departing either Europe for the Pacific, or once the Pacific had been won, they began to shift back home. In 1945, one could find 97 American combat divisions in Europe, but by 1947, there were only 12. President Harry Truman, it was said, was merely fulfilling his promise to the American citizen by bringing their boys home. Well, was that all there was to the American military withdrawal? Or could currents of isolationism, akin to that seen in the 1920s and 30s, be detected as well? 
the very fact that the American disposition and angle on the post-war European arrangement continued to weigh so heavily demonstrates the undeniable power and presence of the American military complex by the end of the war. In 1945 and 46, the question of American involvement in European affairs was not based solely out of a sense of defence. The Cold War did not immediately begin as soon as the Axis surrendered, or at least, the Cold War was not made official, unofficial US policy, even if some of Truman's advisers appreciated the dangers which Moscow posed. Instead of the military threat posed by the Soviets, the major concern which plagued Europeans, and which led them to call upon Washington, was economic. After a brief run of positivity and energy in late 1945 and 46, by 1947, Europe seemed poised on the edge of disaster. If America chose to ape its predecessors, who had walked out of the League of Nations before that organisation had even taken root, then the borders of Western Europe and the democratic roots of that corner of the continent would be lost to history. A casualty of Europe's Second World War, as surely as those 36.5 million souls. The solution to the dire situation was as radical and unprecedented as it was essential. Fortunately for the preservation of democracy, stability and peace in Europe, the US Secretary of State, George C. Marshall, was on the case. And next time, we shall see exactly what he proposed, why he felt compelled to propose it, and how this radical plan served to split East and West, even at this early stage. So thanks for listening, history friends and patrons. We finish ever so slightly earlier than normal today, to give you all a chance to digest this new information and the new era which housed it all. But we'll be back tomorrow with part two of our crash course on the Cold War. So until then, my name is Zach. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 